I'm in the process of reading an article about uh, Afghanistan and what's going on. And uh, somebody <laughs> said, it's not what you don't know that it's the, that is the problem. It's what you think you know that you don't know is the problem. And the example given was how we got into the Iraq war. Everybody was sure Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, and they didn't. Okay? So it was what we were sure we knew that we didn't know that was the actual problem. So that functions on uh, international bases, but it also functions on our day-to-day -day relationships with individuals. Yeah? When there's some kind of... Uh, bad vibe or whatever, uh, we think we know what is going on. We think we know the other person's motivation. We think we know what started it. In fact, we are sure we knew. We know. And yet, so often, we don't know. Okay, we have imputed things to the situation that aren't so, and then acted according to our erroneous imputations. Okay, and, and all the time thinking that we understood the situation correctly. Yeah, can you recognize times when you've done that? Yeah, so it's... It made me think I like these parallels where you can see the same, not that I like the parallels, but I enjoy seeing parallels between what occurs internationally and what occurs personally and how it all comes down to the same mechanism in the mind of looking at things only through that periscope of me, I, my, mine, or my side, yeah, and then imputing on others and thinking our imputations are reality. Okay, so just a good thing to be aware of as we uh, go about the day, uh, you know, asking ourselves when we're imputing, when we really do know what we think we know. <laughs> okay, and giving some space uh, for not knowing. Yeah, because so often what happens is we think we know somebody else says something different. We dig in our heels, and then we are totally shut down to any further uh, information because we are defending what we know is reality. Yeah, and uh, there's no space in the mind uh, to see the situation from another viewpoint. Yeah? And so this particular article was uh, saying that it's not, and I know I'm talking politics, but this is Dharma, okay? You know, to me it relates to Dharma, that uh, the article was saying that it's not how we are leaving Afghanistan, that's the problem. It's uh, our attitude about leaving and, uh, and our refusal 
to really uh, look at how we got in there, how we carried on for 20 years, and what we assumed at the end. And that right now, everybody is just criticizing everybody else, passing the buck, because nobody wants to take responsibility, because then they may not get elected again, or their uh, reputation will go down, or whatever it is. But using the blame game to actually avoid looking at what were our own errors. And so that hap- that's happening internationally again, you know, not actually looking at how we got into Afghanistan. Did we have a clear stat- strategy? Why did we stay so long? And what did we expect at the end? Uh, you know, and the writer was giving po- different possible scenarios, you know, because Biden's getting criti- criticized for not pulling out soon enough or pulling out too soon and so playing the different ways that could have played out. And none of it worked out good. But as long as you can blame somebody else because it was their fault, it doesn't matter if there were no good alternatives or not. You know, the whole thing is escaping our our own uh, responsibility. Okay? So seeing that as as a country, but seeing that as individuals too. You know, and when we don't want to look like uh, at uh, our part of it, then we actually miss a huge opportunity to learn. Yeah, because it's only when we can, when we make mistakes and then can see the error in how we went about it, that we then learn to do things differently. You know, if we always, uh, engineer it so that we are triumphant then in, in any dispute then we never learn do we yeah and so uh, as dharma practitioners we're trying to learn and see what our foibles are not brush them away yeah so whether it's internationally or on an interpersonal level, it's the same kind of thing, yeah? And, uh, yeah, so to be able, when we see our own mistakes, to say, yippee, I found my mistake, now I can learn, yeah? Instead of, no, you didn't make that mistake, (laughs) okay? Yeah, so you see here that this is why Dharma practice is the opposite from how things are done in the worldly sense. Okay? So we have lots of habits in the worldly sense. So when we start to break those habits, you know, then uh, we might at the beginning say, oh, I'm wrong so much. Um, But actually, we're learning a lot. Okay? So... It's, it, we shouldn't worry about making mistakes or being wrong. What we should worry about is not learning from them. Okay? Because we're all going to make mistakes and we're all going to be wrong at one time or another. Is that me? Yeah, but uh, never mind that. You already know that. Um, why are you looking at me that way? Mm. <laughs> um, so, 
uh, you know, to, to really, um, yeah, I mean, this is how bodhisattvas deal with things. It's like, okay, yeah, here's a problem. What can I learn from it? Okay, so that's one problem. I'll tell you another one at the end of the class. Yeah, so uh, let's do our visualization. Okay, and when we're visualizing all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and all the sentient beings around us, we might think of all the people in the Afghan military, all the Taliban people, all the people in the U.S. military, all the people who helped the occupying forces and now are stuck and can't get out, and uh, and all the other beings who are living quite comfortably right now. So we want to have everybody around us and realize that the three kinds of dukkha uh, all of us, no matter what our present situation at this moment, uh, at one time or another, we have been or will be subject to all the th- forms of dukkha. And the third one we're always subject to. It never leaves. And so seeing that, and uh, and being r- really um, filled with gratitude for having found a path that leads beyond that. With that kind of attitude, then we will take refuge and generate bodhicitta. seeing the situation that all of us are in, that we're all trying to understand what's going on, and yet our senses betray us. We perceive inherent existence where there is none. And our mental consciousness also betrays in the sense that we project all sorts of interpretations and motivations and don't see things clearly and also grasp at the things that are that appear to our senses as truly existent our mental consciousness grasps them as actually existing that way as solidifying our our perceptions. So this uh, affects, affects all of us who haven't 
realized emptiness. And yet, we all want happiness and not suffering. We're all doing our best. And yet, we have these innate obstacles. So rather than judge people, because we expect them to not have obstacles, then we should have compassion. And similarly, instead of judging ourselves because we have obstacles, recognize them, have some compassion for ourselves, and have a more open mind that is flexible and willing to revise our ideas. But most of all, to use that compassion to generate bodhicitta. And so instead of just trying to tweak our samsara to get ourselves and all other beings out of samsara, And so as bodhisattva wannabes, we aspire not only to get ourselves out of samsara, but to help others to do so. And to do that, we need to attain full awakening. So that's where the bodhicitta motivation goes beyond the motivation for liberation. So, the chapter about fortitude and patience. I just want to go back to um, verse 8 and verse 9 before we take up on verse 10 again. Therefore, I should totally eradicate the fuel of this enemy, for this enemy has no other function than that of causing me harm. What is the fuel? What, What is the enemy? And what is the fuel of the enemy? Anger is the enemy. And what's the fuel? Unhappy mind. Okay. Has your mind been unhappy about anything this week? Yeah. When your mind is unhappy, do you get annoyed and irritated and maybe really angry and mad and critical? Did you think, when you were getting upset, did you think, 
oh, this is because my mind is unhappy? Some yes, some no. Did you try and do something about the unhappy mind? What did you try and do? Get over it, Simke. <laughs> I mean, it, it was just about somebody not doing something that I thought they should have been doing. It was like, what? You know? It's, it's the idea, Venerable, that the only option I think I have is to get angry. That's what I've been sitting with this week, the habit of that default. Hmm. And that it's a turn of the mind. It's not like I have to do three-mile run or something, or I have to do a thousand prostrations. Yeah. I just have to be willing to say, I don't want to have this kind of mind. Yeah. There's nothing out there that warrants this kind of mind. And what would you rather have? You know? Yeah. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because when we're unhappy, we don't think that there's anything we can do about it, except go to the refrigerator or the bar. Yeah, or turn on the TV or, you know, whatever it is. You know, when we're unhappy, there's the fuel of our anger. But we feel, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But when there is something we can do about it. What did what did you do? I was really trying to to shift my focus from the problem is external, the problem is you know, what that person said or did, and instead kept coming back to, I can look at this a different way. It's my choice how I'm perceiving this. Can I look at this a different way or have compassion or bring something up that's going to be different than just being unhappy, being Mm. displeased? Mm. Good. Were you successful? Not exactly, but I kept kind of trying. Okay, good. I, I wasn't. I didn't That's let myself dig it. into the unhappiness. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's really uh, we have to work hard to change this habit. You know, this assumption that the happy, unhappiness is coming from outside, and there's nothing I can do about it, and that anger is the only possible response I can have. Yeah? So we have three pretty deeply ingrained, um, you know, ways of looking at things that we're holding there that actually uh, work against our own unhappy, our own happiness. Verse 9, whatever befores me, befalls me, I shall not disturb my mental joy. For having been made unhappy, I shall not accomplish what I wish, and my virtues will decline. Okay? So seeing how trapped we are by our old habitual ways that I just described, this is the verse that we need to come back to again and again and again. Okay? Just saying quite frankly to ourselves, whatever happens... I'm not going to disturb my my mental joy. Yeah, it's not saying I shall not let it disturb my mental joy, because the disturbance isn't it. The disturbance is here. You know, I shall not uh, let it disturb my uh, my mental joy. Okay, why not? Because it's, I've already re. You know, I know the conclusion of this video. 
As soon as I get unhappy, then I either take it out on somebody or I go sulk in my room or I, you know, start talking to other people and getting other people on my side against the person whose fault I think it is. So I've, I know the storyline of what I usually do. Yeah. And I've looked at it in my meditation and seen the results of following that storyline. So I'm going to stop it and not do that. Okay. So this involves beforehand, when you're not in the situation, looking at how you followed the storyline in the past and what the results were. If you don't do that, yeah, then you're not going to have the the resolution that's in this verse to not go down that, that path again. Yeah, because you haven't acknowledged that all the times you went down it in the past, it hasn't worked. Okay, so what's that thing about somebody goes around the block and they keep stepping in the same hole every time they go around, you know, and then finally it dawns on them one day to go a different route. Yeah, so it's like that. Yeah. So, But we have to really spend the time making examples in our own life of what happens when we, you know, say to ourselves, Unhappiness is coming from outside. It's the only thing I can feel in this situation. I have every right to be angry, and every normal person would be upset about this. Okay? So we need to really check that out. And here, I think it's helpful to think about uh, the life of His Holiness, or, you know, if you've known some other Tibetan masters, or other people who've really gone through a lot in their lives and come out of it with a really uh, positive mental state. Think, you know, if I were in that situation, how would I handle it? Yeah. And so along that line, um, Sherry has written, had written me quite uh, a long description of her illness, which is now on uh, the website think to put it up. Yeah. So uh, I would advise reading that, you know, because she talks quite frankly about, uh, you know, the illness and how it affects her and how she's really using the Dharma uh, because she can see the difference between the physical pain and how much her mental reaction to the pain, you know, really burdens her, yeah. And the physical pain, she can deal with the mental reaction when she just gives in to it. And what was interesting is she, because the disease she has, some days she's really sick, some days she feels okay. She said the days when she feels okay are the days she has to be most careful because if she isn't careful, then she just starts thinking, oh, this is normal, and takes it for granted. And then when the illness comes back again, she's all over again with, oh, no, this is so terrible, and why me, and this isn't fair, and I can't stand this. And she has to pull herself all out of that all over again, 
whereas if she just enjoys the days where she feels good without, you know, expecting it to last forever, but without also having a black cloud over her head saying, oh, it's coming, don't be happy, uh, without that extreme either, you know, then she can really work with it. Yeah, quite amazing what she's doing. Okay, verse 10. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy about something if it cannot be remedied? So this one we should memorize. <laughs> Actually, these 8 through 8, 9, and 10, you know. Um, and it's really good to ask ourselves, you know. Is, and so instead of remedy, or uh, instead of unhappy, why should I worry about something if it can be remedied? Yeah, and what is the use of worrying about it if it can't be? What is the, uh, why should I be anxious about something if it can be remedied? You know, what is the use of being anxious about something if it can't be remedied? So you can insert different words for unhappy here, and they all work, yeah? And the thing is to to really uh, remember that in this situation and really work it. And, yeah, if something can be done about this, then let's try and do it. No reason to be upset. And if something can't be done about it, no reason to be upset. Let's just accept the situation and work with what, is what is the reality of the moment, the conventional reality of the moment anyway. Okay? So quite powerful, you know, when we try and, and do that instead of just feeling like, I am the victim of my emotions, which is how we often feel, isn't it? Yeah? Like, uh, yeah, whatever my emotions are, they are there, they overwhelm me, I can't, you know, they're reality, I can't do anything. Yeah, and to really able to say, no, there are conditioned phenomena, yeah, so if they came into existence due to conditions, they can, you know, you change the conditions and they go out of ex- uh, existence. So there's no use getting all in a, what is it, getting all in a tussy, all in a tizzy, getting all in a tizzy about it, okay. I love those words, you know, it makes you wonder, you you take... (laughs) It's like, okay, what's the definition and what's the definition? How would you define tizzy? Okay. (laughs) What is the basis of designation of tizzy? Is the basis of designation the same thing as the definition? You know, try it with something like that and see. See what you come up with. It's fun. Okay, verse 11. For myself and for my friends... I want no suffering, no disrespect, no harsh words, and nothing unpleasant. Right? 
but for my enemies, it is the opposite. May they suffer. May they go to hell. And I tell them so. Okay? May they, what is it? Uh, may they get hit by a truck. Yeah, that's, that's the new one. That's the old one. Yeah. Okay. But think about it. For, my, for myself, first for myself, not even for my friends, but first for myself, no suffering, no disrespect, no harsh words, nothing unpleasant. Okay. That first rule of the universe. Okay. Then the people who I care about, meaning the people who make me happy, meaning the people who do what I want them to do when I want them to do it. It doesn't matter whether they are virtuous people or not, as long as they like me and support what I want. Then they're my friends. Okay, think about it. Yeah, have we ever had friends who have done lots of non-virtue and uh, we don't think anything bad about them at all? Yeah, because they agree with many of our other opinions and ideas. So we don't always choose our friends based on their ethical conduct. Although it would be good if we did, wouldn't it? I led a discussion group once. Some of our FOSAs now, Friends of Srivasti Abbey Singapore, I knew them when they were students in the Polytechnic. And one time uh, they invited me to, to come and lead a discussion with them. So we talked about uh, how you choose your friends and what you look for in friends. And it was really interesting, yeah, because what they came up with is people who are honest, people who don't tell my secrets to other people when I ask them not to, people who, uh, you know, don't criticize me but give me space, um, you know, people who are open-minded and fair, people who I can trust with my stuff, they won't steal it. You know, what they came up with, with Criterion for Friends, were, was basically the ten non-virtues. Okay? It was so interesting. And it was a good way to bring them into the Dharma, because they saw these values. And then at the end, I said, you know, this is exactly what the Buddha said, and here's the list. And, oh, hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So... Uh, you know, for do we choose our friends according to those values? Yeah, we say them, but when somebody uh, acts negatively, if they're still nice to us and say nice things to us and flatter us, do we get cut them? You know, some uh, some leave. And kind of ignore the negativities. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that every time a friend does something that you consider dishonest, you pounce on them and not never speak to them again. Not I'm not saying that, but you know, 
to, just to look at, at what our criteria are. And I think very often it's who is nice to me and who likes me. And whoever likes me and says nice things about me, I like them back. Yeah. No matter what, how they treat other people, as long as they treat me well, it's, I'll be their friend. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes quite evident when we do the equanimity meditation and we look at, you know, why we ask ourselves why we label some people as friends and why enemies. It becomes very obvious that it's all in relation to me. Yeah. Okay, so after ourselves, then we consider our friends because they're nice to us. So we don't want suffering, disrespect, harsh words, or anything unpleasant about our friends. And we will defend our friends. Okay. Sounds kind of like how gangs work. Doesn't it? Yeah? I am a blood or I am a crypt. You know, what was it in in West Side Story? There's some line about that. Yeah, the sharks and the jets. I am a jet, a jet all the way from my first breath to my last dying day. Something like that, you know? It's like, I am loyal to this group because they are my identity. They are my friends. They have my backs. It doesn't matter Everything else they do. Yeah. Amazing how lyrics stick in your mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But for my enemies, it's the opposite. So for people who are not nice to me, who don't sing, sing my praises who may even, God forbid, notice the faults that I don't have, that I do have, that they are not supposed to notice. Um, it's the opposite. And who cares what happens to them? Yeah. So it, it's interesting to watch that. And again, that's playing out in the international scene. First, we get the Americans out. Our team. They get out first. Okay. Then, if there's more space, the people who are allies, even though they risk their lives and their lives are now in danger, they're my friends. So they come next. Okay. And then everybody else kind of. Okay, so to see that, you know, and uh, I just remember my my first Dharma course in Lake Arrowhead, Lama Zopa was teaching, and uh, yeah, we were doing something about equanimity, and Rinpoche said, I I can never uh, imitate Rinpoche, you know, but you can imagine it with his gestures, yeah, his voice. You know. How are you different from an animal? 
And then our minds start ticking off all the reasons we're different from animals. And then he says, actually, not very. Yeah. Dogs, when somebody nice comes who gives them food, they wag their table and jump with joy when they see that person. And somebody kicks them, they, they bark, you know, or they bite. And some stranger comes, they bark. So do you do anything different? Yeah, the people you like. We help our, we help our friends. We harm our enemies. And everybody else we look at, are you going to be a friend or an enemy? And we kind of, you know, watch them to make sure. And then he went on and said, except, actually, the animals are better. They only kill other living beings when they're threatened or if they're hungry. Human beings kill other human beings for sport, for fun. Yeah, because somebody did some small thing they don't like. And then, you know, here is where you see when His Holiness talks about you have a human brain and we should really use our human brain in a wise way. You know, here he's picking up from what Lama Zopa said about, you know, we should be smarter than the animals. (laughs) Yeah? Not just help our friends harm our enemies. Maybe try and understand our enemies. Maybe try and, you know, help our friends as real friends should, which includes, you know, sometimes pointing things out to them. Verse 12, the causes of happiness sometimes occur, but the causes for suffering are frequent. What? What? Are you saying what when you read this? The causes of happiness sometimes occur, but the causes of suffering are frequent. Now, he's making a statement about how things is are. Our mind goes, well, it shouldn't be like this. Yeah. The causes of happiness should always occur. And the causes for suffering should never be frequent. Okay? So it's kind of a statement, but we turn it into a should. That is the opposite of what it means. And I don't know about you, but what, you know, what are our expectations each day? Yeah? Our expectations, I don't know about you, my expectations and I don't even say it verbally, it's just so habitual, is I assume things are going to be pleasant. And I assume that there's not going to be any horrendous cause of suffering. And then when things are not pleasant or when suffering occurs, it's breaking my rule of the universe. And my mind gets unhappy. We're back to verse... 
not, you know, um, eight again. Yeah. And I get unhappy and then I get angry and da 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 da. Yeah. But kind of what's what's doing the whole thing is that unrealistic expectation. But we have to be careful here because in freeing ourselves from the unrealistic expectation that everything should be nice, we should not go to the other extreme of suffering is coming. Like I said, it's there over the horizon. I can't let myself be happy because... I know I'm going to wind up with a cancer diagnosis by the end of today, or the Taliban is going to bomb the Abbey, or, uh, you know, something, something. One of the turkeys is going to come down with COVID and bite me. Uh, yeah. And, okay. And we start uh, going off on, on one of our things. So it's a balance between having mental space for happiness to occur and for suffering to occur without clinging to the happiness that we think should be there and without automatically pushing away any thought of things we don't like because we think they shouldn't be there at all and therefore getting anxious because in the back of our mind we were told not to expect happiness, but that life is suffering. You know, And then we, we just start getting anxious and paranoid and suspicious. Okay? So, you know, this, this is the thing. When we look at the first truth, yeah, the truth of dukkha, it's how do we look at that with the correct attitude? Because thinking that it doesn't exist, that dukkha does not exist, doesn't, is not true. But getting all anxious that dukkha is, you know, going to crash on our head, or should I say the first or second kind of dukkha is going to crash on our head at any moment, you know, that also isn't realistic okay so we want an attitude you know when we met when we meditate on the four truths on that first truth the truth of dukkha you know to to be able to say yes this is the way it is period without taking the other step to therefore it shouldn't be or, therefore, I'm anxious it's going to happen all the time. It's just, this is the reality of samsara. And then our mind feels sober, but we're not anxious. And we're not paranoid. The mind is sober. And from that sober state, then we can generate the wish to be out of samsara. And we can start re researching what its causes are and applying the antidotes and, and, you know, having some temporary cessations. But it, it's very important that, you know, with all the meditations that we do, 
that we really make sure we come to the correct conclusion. And the correct conclusion isn't just the words we say. It's the feeling inside of us. Because we can say, yes, you know, samsara is dukkha, and just have that sober, realistic mind. And we can say, yes, samsara is dukkha, and be totally in a tizzy about suffering, you know, falling on our head at any minute. Okay? So it's not the words, it's the inside feeling. And to really check up that we're get we're coming to the right conclusion when we do the Lama meditations. Okay. Yeah. That's quite important. I've learned the hard way from coming to the wrong conclusions and then feeling awful and realizing that the meditation isn't helping my mind at all and then having the thought of, duh, maybe I didn't do it correctly. I need to go back and really understand what this meditation is about. So this is also, you know, sometimes in uh, uh, Buddhist books, not the translations, but the ones written by other people, uh, you know, like the, how they teach Buddhism in university, university textbook. What a Buddhist belief. One point, first point, life is suffering. You know, that's, that's not what the Buddha was talking about. And then how do people react to it? Life is suffering. These people are all pessimists. Yeah, Buddhism isn't going to help you. It's all so pessimistic. And so they turn away. So, yeah, somebody once asked me to endorse a, a book that they were writing, and I they were explaining the Four Noble Truths, and the first one was Life is Suffering. And it was a book designed uh, to help, like a 12-step program for, for Buddhists. And I wrote to that person, I said, please don't say that. It's not accurate. yeah. And that person wrote back, and they didn't want to listen. It's like, no, that's what the book says. That's what I say. No, it's not what the book says. Or maybe he read one of those college textbooks. Yeah, Really, it's astounding what you find about Buddhism in college textbooks, how much people have misunderstood things. You know, and how they call Tibetan Buddhism Lamaism, thinking that we all worship our teachers. But sometimes you can look at the prayers and think, oh, I can understand how they got that idea, when really that isn't what's going on. Okay. Okay. So the causes of happiness sometimes occur. That's true. Enjoy them, let them go when they stop. The causes for suffering are frequent. True, recognize it, don't get bent out of shape, let it go. Without suffering, there is no renunciation. Therefore, mind, you should stand firm. 
So here's one of the benefits of undergoing the first two kinds of dukkha, yeah, where you really can see your suffering, yeah, because yeah, uh, my body gets old and sick and dies, and that's the reality, and there's no way to avoid it. Okay. And then you start thinking, and this has happened since time without beginning, getting taking one body after another one, it getting born, aging, sickness, dying, De- you know, reborn, aging, sickness, dying, reborn. And I've been through this many times. And there is an alternative, and there is a path to that alternative. And so, therefore, mind, you should stand firm. I'm going to stand firm, and I'm going to seek a way out of this mess. I'm not going to let it overwhelm me. So, you know, when we talk about the the kind of inner strength that bodhisattvas have, or the kind of uh, self-confidence bodhisattvas has, have, here is where you see it. Yeah. You know, bodhisattvas, they're, you know, especially on the two lower paths, the body gets old and sick and dies. Okay. And they say, yes, this is samsara. And I am working to get myself and everybody else outside of it, out of it. And the mind stays firm. Instead of going, Oh, I was meditating on bodhicitta and feeling so blissed out, full of love for everybody in the world. And now, you know, I'm on a ventilator and this is terrible and everything's hopeless. Okay, that's not how bodhisattvas do it. Okay. They, they have the big picture. They say it. It's like they see it, and then they say, I will stand firm. No matter what happens, I am not going to let the afflictions take over my mind. Because if I do, I'm lost. Yeah. I'm going to be miserable. I'm going to create negative karma. I'm going to make other people miserable. I don't want to do that. I've done that too much in the past. Okay? And so we have to build within ourselves this inner strength and this, uh, the force of the confidence. You know, I, you know, I will do this and I am confident I could instead of, I will do this, but it's so hard and I don't know if I really can. Yeah, because as soon as we let the doubt, the self-doubt in, okay, we've shot ourselves in the foot, yeah, and the afflictions have invaded. Like in a Trojan horse, you know, they got through the gate and then they come spilling out the belly of the horse. Okay, so, you know, we've got to to really... You know, even if you have doubt, you know, don't give it any space. Yeah? 
I, I'm, I am holding firm to this. And my, my suffering is good. It helps me develop renunciation. It helps me develop compassion for other living beings. It helps me stop being so arrogant. It helps me overcome my expectation that everything's going to be wonderful and then getting upset when it isn't. So see the benefit, the, the good things that come, can come out of going through difficulties. Yeah? And really, you know, I, when, you're, when, <laughs> when you're feeling good, it's, it's easy to say, oh, you learn so much when you go through difficulties. But then when the difficulties hit, it's like, ah! But, you know, after you go through enough difficulties and you find your way out of them, then you can start to have some confidence that, yes, I can do it again this time. Sometimes people don't give themselves credit for finding their way out of difficulties. And they don't give themselves credit for what they've been able to accomplish in their life. And so there, it's, it's really important, you know, to see what you've accomplished, not be arrogant about it, but to see through your own experience, yes, you have been able to deal with difficulties. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure as a mother, you dealt with a lot of difficulties. You know, your kid getting sick and throwing up all over the place and then problems with your husband and financial problems and being an immigrant and so many problems. And you dealt with all of them. You dealt with all of them and give yourself credit for that. Yes, harder. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So everybody, each one of you, if you look back in your life, you've gone through difficulties and you've dealt with them and you've come out of it stronger. So it's important to remember that so that you know that you have done it before and you can do it again. Yeah. And then that helps us to have that, okay, yeah, there's suffering, we'll deal with it. So give me your package of tissues. You don't have any access to them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're going to expose your hidden staff. Stash, I should say. I should say. Okay. So, verse 13. Okay, so now we're, um, yeah, we're coming into some other things here. So, if some ascetics and the people of Kar Karnapa endure the pain of cuts and burns for no reason, then for the sake of liberation, why have I no courage? Yeah. So the people of Karnapa and, and ascetics, I don't know so much about the people of Karnapa, but ascetics, yeah, and it sounds like the people of Karnapa had some tendency in that realm, um, 
Ascetics think that by denying the body and torturing the body, it will free them of attachment to the body. Okay? So they will endure the pain of cuts, burns, Catholic Church, self-flagellation. What else did the church do? No meat on Fridays? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a hair shirt. Jumping in freezing cold water. I think they did this like in Ireland, in freezing water. So, you know, people will go undergo all sorts of deliberately inflicted suffering thinking that it will benefit their spiritual practice. But Shantideva says it's for no reason. In other words, it's not going to produce the result that they want. It's, it's needless suffering. Okay? So if people do this for needless and for no good reason at all and, ex- and experience, and they're willing to experience suffering to do these things, then why, for the sake of liberation, which I know it exists, and that working towards it and enduring inconvenience and suffering for the sake of liberation, I know that is w- worthwhile, why do I crumble in the face of the smallest suffering? Yeah? It's a good question. And this is one, I mean, this is why I love this text, because Shantideva is talking to himself, so it's very easy to meditate on this. You read the verse, and wherever it says I, you think I, and you realize, you know, what he's saying to himself, I need to say to myself, too. Okay, why do I have no courage if all these people do put themselves in harm's way either for no reason or they wind up just uh, creating so much negative karma. Yeah? And you look all around you and we see this happening. And sometimes the people who are suffering from a Buddhist viewpoint for no good reason, these people are said to be heroes in society because of the difference in values. Okay? When I lived in uh, Singapore, I think, I think I saw this in Malaysia, not Singapore, but you can tell me if, if it's in Singapore. There was a certain Hindu um, holiday. Yeah? It's in Singapore too. And it's something to do with purification. And they will have big, huge carts made of heavy wood with, they're very, very heavy carts. And chains going from the cart with hooks on the end, and they will hook the hook into their flesh on the back and then walk down the street pulling these very heavy carts. Yeah. 
And you see them in the street walking down. You know, there's like a parade of people doing this practice. And it's got to be out of the world painful. Yeah? And for what purpose? Does that purify negative karma? Yeah? They, in their religion, they have some quote, quote, good reason for doing this. But from a Buddhist perspective, wow. Why, why do that? Hmm? Okay. So, uh, but yet they're brave in doing that, aren't they? I mean, none of us would go and voluntarily put hooks in the flesh of our back and pull heavy carts down the street. Yeah. We wouldn't, you know, we don't have as much courage as them to even do that. They do that for no good reason, you know. But to experience a little bit of suffering for the sake of liberation, no, we won't do it. Yeah, too much suffering. Yeah, to actually make myself sit down when I'm angry and practice these methods. You know, to really take out this book when I'm angry and start to think about it. Or to take out the book when I'm not angry and rehearse thinking about that. That's too much suffering is beyond me. I cannot do it. And yet these people will walk down the street dragging that stuff. Okay? So Shanti Deva is, is saying... Yeah, oh, you think you're such, so good at things, <laughs> you know? Take it. Why are you, why are you such a coward when it comes to working for liberation? Yeah. So, to, to ask ourselves this, yeah. Why am I such a coward at, because, you know, be, something happens with somebody else and they misunderstood what you said or their, you know, whatever it is, and you feel like you need to correct them. And they still haven't understood, and you've got to correct them again. And so there's this flurry of emails going back and forth and back and forth, you know, or words, you know, in the echoing through the dining room or the kitchen about, you know, I told you to put the spatula there. No, you didn't. You know, you told me to put it here. No, I told you to put it over there. You know, don't you remember on such and such a day at exactly 10.13, I told you to put the spatula there? No, I don't remember it because you you are hallucinating and blaming me. Yeah? (laughs) And to not, to, to realize that why are we doing that? What are we trying to prove? Why is it so important that I correct every small thing somebody has misunderstood? Yeah? Why can't I just stop the email chain? Because I am right. And I've got to prove
prove to them that I'm right so they don't mess with me anymore. Yeah, and we think that's courage. That's actually cowardice, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, what is this argument all about anyway? What is the point of it? So sometimes people will have a little tough. They have a tough tiff. Huh? Tiff. They don't have tufts. They have tiffs. Oh, tufts are up here. That's right. Okay. So they have a little tiff. <laughs> okay. And then they come to me. You know, and then they start telling me the whole story. <laughs> well, it started three months ago when this and this, and, and then I said this, and she said that, and I said this, and she said that, and then she went and told somebody else who joined in and tried it to mediate, and that person made it worse, and I've told that person to go away, but they didn't go away because they got involved in it, and da 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 da. And, you know, I can see that the whole story's coming. And so I stopped them after two sentences, and I said, I don't want to hear the whole story. Oh, people are so offended. This is my story about my injustice. Yeah? And I want to tell you my story in all the gory details with a little bit of exaggeration to make the other person look bad and me look good. But we won't mention that. You know, because actually, for me, I don't care what the story is. Yeah, I really don't. What the story is does not matter beans, okay? Whether you put... You know, the, the plat, you're mad because they put the plastic recycling in the bin that says paper. Like somebody did downstairs. I saw it this morning and they put, <laughs> oh, you know, can't these people read? And then they put a, 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 a cloth bag in with the, the toilet paper rolls. These people, you know, yeah. And then you, you know what they did last week? And da, 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 da. And how many times have we told them? And Venerable Sangha Kadro told me to announce to them to not put paper towels in the paper recycle. Yeah, do you really need to know that whole story? Yeah. The point is, somebody's upset. Let's talk about why you're upset. Yeah, the point is not who started it and who's picking on who and who's being who is being unfair and who's attacking. That is not the point. The point is you're angry and are you going to continue being angry or do you want some help to calm down? That's what's important. Okay. So it's similar. I think I've told you before, you know, uh, uh, you know, coming from America and psychological background and everything, uh, when I first went to see my teachers, I thought they wanted to hear my story. Yeah? 
so Rinpoche, this and this and this and this kind of family and this is what my parents did and da 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 and oh and I felt guilty about this and that oh and oh and then you know it didn't even get that far to a yawn or a then you know. It was very clear immediately. My teacher, they don't care about my story. They don't care about my childhood. They care about what is going on now and how are you going to work with it. But this is my story. And my story is so important and it really gives you a lot of information about me. And, you know... And then what's so weird is, you know, we feel trapped by our story and we sometimes think, wouldn't it be nice to go somewhere where nobody knows my background? Yeah, have you ever thought that? Wouldn't it be nice? Nobody knows my background. I can start all fresh with no, you know, anything. You think, oh, that would be so nice. But then, as soon as you get to that place, what do you start doing then? Telling them your story. (laughs) The story that you yourself want to be free from, but you're insisting that they know it because this is who you really are. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? How we are. Yeah. And to get to a place where your own story is boring. Yeah. It's like, I've told that story so many times. It's boring. You know? So I have to tell you stories from my thing just so you know, you know, something about how to handle situations. But actually, so many of these stories are just so boring now. It's like... (laughs) Okay. Any questions so far? When you spoke about dukkha and um, keeping it basically to an even crow and not falling or being Mm -hmm. too high up, so... uh, yeah, I'm really working with that and um, find it challenging unless I'm really making the meditation my daily practice. But there are so many other meditations, of course. And then I don't have that aspect so strongly in the forefront of my mind. And then I have indeed these roller coaster experiences. Mm. So, yeah, I'm not really sure how to... Um, how to keep that feeling of um, um, of dukkha um, to the forefront of my life and live a life that is not so <laughs> driven by um, all these ups and downs. Okay, so what what are your ideas of what you can do? Um, now, yeah, one, I mean, what I even give others advice is... <laughs> Um, 
I mean, I can't accomplish all the teachings in this life, right? Mm -hmm. So um, if I feel this is important to me and this helps me, then I make it to one of my main practices yeah. of these five practices that I'm doing and deciding to, um, you know, to focus in this life on or period of time till I feel this is stable enough. My mind has um, some grounding there. So good that you answered your own question perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Listen to the next verse, verse 14. There is nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. Okay, so there it is. You want something to become more stable in your own mind? How do you deal with it? You acquaint with yourself, yourself with it. You familiarize yourself with it. You practice it again and again and again and again. And there's nothing that doesn't become easier or more ingrained in us. Um, yeah, that is, there's nothing that, there's nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So we acquaint our mind with, you know, what are the most important, you know, elements of practice for us to do at this particular time in our lives. Because it's true, I mean, in the Tibetan tradition, there's so many practices, there's so many things to learn. And you can just get overwhelmed. And then, you know, each weekend you have a different course. So you practice that for a few days, then you have another course, you practice that, then you go back and to the third one, then you go to the fourth one. And, and so, uh, you know, you don't become familiar with any of them. But if you, you know... See what is the thing that you really have to work with now, you know. And it doesn't mean you only do that. You can put in some other things as well, too. Yeah, then you become more familiar with it. Okay. Yeah, like I told you, when I lived in Italy, I would get angry every day, and I'd read this chapter every night. And then get angry the next day, and then read the chapter that night. You know, but after a while, some things sink in, yeah? Okay, so there's nothing whatsoever that is not made easier through acquaintance. So, through becoming acquainted with small harms, I should learn to patiently accept greater harms. So we shouldn't be all um, boisterous of, you know, Okay, I'm going to do, you know, 500 nunes in a row. And I'm going to do 5,000 prostrations every day because I'm a brave bodhisattva wannabe and I can accomplish all that. You know, it, we shouldn't do that, okay? Okay, but yeah, to acquaint ourselves with small things and then from there, big up, build up to bigger things, you know? And this is the way everything is in life, isn't it? You know, I mean, all these great sports heroes, how did, how did, you know, Simone Biles, how did she start? She didn't at two years old start, you know, jumping on the whatever it is and doing the landing on her feet, you know? What? 
She started very early, but she didn't start with the what's the Lukchensko, whatever it is, movement that everybody was wondering if she was going to do during the Olympics or not. That's not what she started with at two years old. She started early, but she probably started with cartwheels. Yeah. And then progressed, you know, somersaults, cartwheels, you know, and then progressed to other things. I think her dad, or no, maybe it was the other one, the one from who was from the Hmong um, minority. Her dad built her a little, um, the, the beam that you walk on. Yeah, yeah, the elevated beam. Yeah, so she was walking on it at age five or six. But, you know, it was just one little beam, and she wasn't, you know, doing the splits on it and jumping in the air and doing three somersaults and landing on it. Yeah, so, you know, everything. You start small, you get accustomed with that, that becomes easy, and then you, you know, you up it a little bit. Okay? So we have to be practical. We have to be practical. And so while Shanti Deva is teaching us to be brave... Yeah, we have to be practical do, too and do what we're capable of doing, master that, and then up it a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I think sports is a very good example because you really see how people train and they have to train. Every single day, whether they're in a competition or not, you know, Phelps, I don't think, you know, again, at three years old, he started swimming the length of the Olympic pool, you know. Probably he got in the, the shallow end, you know, or he was in a kiddie pool. Remember that? You know, and then you, you progress from the kiddie pool that's plastic and it's on grass and your mother's looking over you, um, <laughs> to going in the shallow end and then, you know, going in the middle end, then you go in the deep end. Or you can be like my brother who decided, you know, he was going to not mess with the shallow end and he rode his tricycle into the deep end and it fell to the bottom of the pool and he hung on. Yeah. <laughs> Fortunately, somebody was there who rescued him, pried his hands off of the tricycle handle. <laughs> yeah. And so we shouldn't be like that, you know, but do what we're capable of. Okay. So through becoming acquainted with small harms, I should learn to patiently accept greater harms. Hmm? Okay. So we'll stop here. This could also refer to dealing with the the afflictions that are sort of up and running that are the most, you know, the the obvious one, then go for the subtle. Because when I think of small harms, I'm not just thinking of the, the difficulty that comes with practicing Dharma, but whatever comes at you or how or the things that are oh, the yeah. most um from, Yeah, you know, well that that's what the mean. I mean, whatever comes at you. Mm -hmm. then you start with the small things that only get your afflictions a little bit, a little bit <laughs> riled up. And then you progress 
to the bigger things that get your afflictions more riled up. Yeah. Okay, anything else? Okay.